Well, we are going to begin with the session of Q&A. First of all, thank, thank you for all of you for uh, having submit all of your questions. We may not be able to cover all of them, so our expositors have chosen some of them that have to do with the same theme of the church. So for this, we will begin in the first question. Can you explain what the pragmatic church is and what are its characteristics that help us identify them? Well, first, maybe I will begin, and if you want to comment something. But yes, basically, when we talk about a church that moves within the pragmatic pragmatism, we talk about a church that is focused on what works. They are searching to do things not because they are biblical, but or because they are in the Bible, but because they are convinced. Not because they are convinced they are uh, pleasing the Lord, but be, they are focused on the result of the things. For example, let's say if something is attractive to the assistant, if that brings good results based on the terms of uh, assistance, based on the terms of uh, acceptance, they will opt toward toward those, taking those decisions. And we see that in music. Uh, music that doesn't seek to exalt the name of God, but uh, uh, music that, that attracts the majority of people. A uh, message is the same way. Message that is focused on something that is pleasing to the ears of the audience. And so this is very dangerous, very dangerous. Because you are guiding the people toward a carnality. You would have to, as Paul Washer says in his interviews, you would have to choose more and more carnal uh, mediums to, to keep those people who have come to the church not attracted by the gospel, not attracted by the truth, but attracted by what was uh, in the world. Uh, Ugo, I'm not sure if you want to say something else. Hello, hello, can you hear me? I only want to add the fact uh, of what we were speaking about the con in the conference, that we do things because they are biblical. We need to do what is the divine counsel, as uh, Apostle Paul says, Apostle Paul speaks about there is only one foundation. There is only, there is only one, uh, cornerstone, and that's Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, what we need to, um, retake always is what the Word of God says. How do we move within the local church? This will be ruled by the precepts in the Word of God. Now, when it, when it has to do, uh, with different ages and different cultures, there can be a sort of difference. But the foundation continues to be the same. We cannot seek for another foundation. As you said before, Christ is a foundation, is what we have in God's word. And with that foundation, we try to be faithful to what he says. And logically, with, through wisdom and prayer and asking the Lord to, help us to get to different ages and different cultures. 
So we could say that the authority of the church and the exclusive authority of the church are the scriptures. And pragmatism, that, that idea and concept is imported into the church. So there are churches, uh, very worried about the acceptance of the people. And in doing that, they are discrediting the revelation, the divine revelation and authority of Christ. We are not the ones called to change what God has already established. And if that truth is not accepted, it doesn't mean that we're going to change it. We are going to pray. We're going to continue to exposit faithfully. And those who submit themselves to the, to the government of Christ. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, maybe. The next question is, what are the red flags of an unhealthy church? What would be the signs of an unhealthy church? I, I think we go back to the same theme, uh, although it may sound repetitive. It's not about what color are the benches. It's not about, it's not about what color is the entrance of the church. We're not talking about so much about what is being, uh, plan for the uh, children uh, on summer, I think the flags that are most important, the red flags uh, that should that should grab our attention is that when they see that the authority is not uh, principally or finally the word of God. Ephesians uh, talks to us about this when we see Ephesians chapter 2 it talks about the reconciliation uh, through the cross and what God has done with all the people. Paul, Paul says to these brothers in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, so when we see that, so when we see that a church is not using the word of God, with res with respect and the authority that it deserves, those are re in reality the red flags. Those are signs that we should say we should pray and realize what was going on in this congregation. When there is a lot of uh, going back to pragmatism, what it when that is the most interest to the congregation, the leaders of that congregation, when being modern, uh, being in a way effective, or being on par with what is going on within the culture, when that is more important than the very word of God. I think that is not only a red flag, but I think that is a cover of that we should find a, uh, we should find a church um, um, that gives the authority to the scriptures. Yes, I I believe that part of what he said is indispensable the authority of the word and maybe thinking in in other red flags but in thinking what other things can be observed for example if it is a church where there is not a biblical dis discipline i i believe that would be a, a warning 
if uh, sin is being tolerated within the congregation and there, there's no desire for holiness within the congregation, I believe that is another red flag. If it's a church where there is no love, uh, biblical love, I believe that is also another red flag that we should consider. If the preaching is not ex exposing the, the scripture, it's not being based on the scripture, but they're mainly uh, uh, motivational talks, stories about what happened, and within that, Maybe a, maybe a reference to something about the, the Bible out of context. I believe those would be marks that one should consider and say, I think there's a problem here, a, a, a serious problem. That would be like the marks that are non-negotiables. I also want to add something else to the theme that sometimes there are brothers who say, uh, the leaders in my church don't don't preach the way that how I see uh, John MacArthur, Austin, or others who are known within us. Maybe we should be careful because we also have to see not only how they preach, but also how the person lives. Maybe there is a brother who truly loves the Lord, but hasn't had the opportunity to prepare themselves that uh, others have. So in that case, we should pray for these pastors and ask the Lord that he should give that uh, open that door so that they can uh, equip themselves and continue in the ministry and so that there may be a change in the in the in the church yeah. a suggestion that we give to our seminary students is that you shouldn't leave the church causing a division you shouldn't leave the church uh, throwing rocks and uh, kicking the dog on the way out because the people that say that uh Try to cause a revolutionary, a revolution and say they're going to take everyone. But a true Christian does not do that. A true Christian uh, prays for the leaders to go out and continue praying for them, continue praying for them and seek for a sound church for the good of himself and his family, but not bring problems uh, of divisions, um, including ourselves. Uh, must seek to uh, leave in the best way you can, giving a good testimony. I think I think that answer an answers the next question, which is, what is the right way to leave a church? Maybe I can add another thing here. Uh, maybe uh, giving a bit echo of what Ugo was saying. I believe. There are moments where, sadly, there are biblical reasons why to leave a church. And given the moment, uh, with, uh, many sadness, one, one should try to leave in the, in the best and most grateful, uh, way. Um, being grateful for the, the good things that have been there, uh, trying to be grateful, for, uh, to, to the leadership that you had. And maybe not emphasizing the reason for why you want to leave, creating problems, but being grateful and trying to leave in peace with that leadership. Uh, sadly, many times it's not that easy. 
but that should be our intention and being willing in any moment of trying to uh, mend things. The next question is, how can I confront a loved one who isn't in a good church, but they don't know? How can I confront someone in that situation? How do I do it? Well, first of all, comes to my mind, uh, Pastor Robert Sanchez, you have to shower everything you're going to do with prayer. If you're going to speak to someone and you're going to speak about something delicate as it is uh, the house where you congregate, the church where you have that family. Because remember, uh, despite all the errors that is not church that is not totally sound, it continues to be a community. If you have many years in that church, uh, maybe you, your children have been baptized there or you've been baptized there. Or you have had anniversaries, uh, birthdays, uh, together you have laughed, together you have cried, so you, one feels it as one's family. Now there are certain situations. So the first thing you, a person must do who knows that another person is in that situation is to pray. And it may sound kind of romantic, but that is a reality and many times we don't do it. That is a, a major problem. It's not so much that if we uh, do it or not. The problem is that we haven't wasted our knees uh, praying for that leadership and praying for that church or for that member who to whom we want to say the reality of what is the gospel. And I believe that that is one of the uh, first things we must do. If you want to speak to that person, at least uh, waste a couple of hours uh, asking the Lord and praying for the Lord to open the house, open the the heart of that per person. I believe that is the basic. Yes, uh, maybe uh, many times the reason why our our advice is not well received is uh, maybe because we might not have a very strong relationship with that person. And we simply come with with the hatchet, uh, saying, you're wrong for this and this and that, and here's the verse and here's the doctrine, and you are wrong and your church is wrong. So that, so that falls like a bucket of water. I want to be clear on this without diluting the, the truth, without... Without, without being soft with the truth, but clear and firm, but in love. And there are two things that are not opposite to each other, but they go hand in hand. They are parallel. They are not opposed to each other. If this person, if this person sees that I am interested in their lives, that I truly love them, this family member, that I am not just there to criticize them, but they know that I'm seeking their good. They know that I love him, that I am interested in their, in their growth. So he will listen to what I'm saying. So many times, I'm not saying that this is always the case, but many times it is more difficult in, in trying to warn a family member who is in that situation uh, of a bad church 
when we simply just come with a hatchet and trying to cut heads off. I believe that we need to be wise if we have an attitude that is uh, overly critical. If they see that we are always criticizing that person, will not want to hear us. So I believe we must be we must be wise, and that goes hand in hand with prayer. The Lord gives us wisdom. Uh, James says that those who feel they lack wisdom, uh, the Lord can give that to them. If we, if you see that a friend or member, family member is in a bad situation, or a, a church you just don't like the the chairs, or maybe it's the AC that is too cold, too hot. Well, those are not reasons to to leave from a church. But if we truly are have seen that this church is a false church, they they preach a false gospel. My family member must come out from there. It's because we see that they are going toward uh, destruction. And moreover, if we are seeing it and not doing anything, it's as if as as if we are seeing a family member going off a cliff, and we are and we are watching them walking toward the cliff, and no one is saying anything, nobody is uh, stopping them, and we are simply saying, "I'm not going to get into that, and I'm just going to let him." fall over the cliff. So if we are seeing that it is a false church, a false religion, then we must we must ask for God's help to to bring the truth to their lives with love, with patience, and that the Lord may uh, work in their heart. Yes, I'm sorry. I would like to add something else. It came to my mind, I counsel that I've always given to the brothers in themes like these, uh, the family. As many times it's difficult uh, speaking to the family, including because they know they know our uh, faults. And the family member will point back to something in the past of your, your life. So many, many times it's easier to, to talk to someone else than someone who is close to you. But something that I've, I've always counseled is, apart from prayer, is, is if you are going to talk about a theme, it's logical you are not going to tell them, I come out of that church because I don't like it. Uh, but bring them to the scripture. You can say, uh, look, I've been studying the word of God and what, and what it speaks about offering what it speaks about predestination, what it speaks about uh, the deity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the found foundations of uh, the gospel. But there is something key. Many times we are very quick to speak, and we haven't we haven't studied the text. What will happen if you come close to someone and you say, "Look, this is what the Word of God says." In a church that you are, they are not practicing this. They are not teaching this. But not even yourself are sure about what the Word of God is saying. You, that person may ask questions about what you're speaking about, and you, and all you say is, "Well, that's what the pastor has said." You have to come out. So, if you're going to speak about something, you don't have to know it all 100%. But you do need to have the homework of not just praying, but also seeking what the Word of God says and be like those of 
Berea who study the scriptures and see if the doctrine that is being taught in the church is true so that you can go back and speak with that family member. You don't even have to tell them to come out. Many times we can shout out to them and say, be, uh, be careful, you're about to be destroyed. But with wisdom, you can begin to speak to them and share with them what you've been studying. And you begin to speak to them about that theme and invite them the next week. I invite you to, out to coffee and be interested in the person and in the well-being of their soul. And I am sure that if it is a son of God, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They will hear the truth of the gospel and they will begin to say, okay, uh, what do I do now? Be, what do I do? Because it seems as if the, my church is not teaching the, the truth. And this is an opportunity to, to guide that person to come out from that congregation. We must ask the Lord for wisdom. So there must be a sense of urgency. There must be a sense of urgency and say it with love including, I would dare to say, invite them to not just believe us, but uh, study it yourself and read it yourself. Yes, and uh, hearing the response of Hugo also uh, came a second response to me. And it's simply just to expand what we were saying. When you said um, to speak the next week, I believe that's key, to be patient. Uh, many times we give a counsel advice to someone and we want that person to take the decision at that moment. Well, I gave you this scripture. I've already explained to you, uh, take a decision now in this moment. So we must be patient just as the Lord is patient with us. Uh, the Lord in our own lives is, is loving, patient. Even with our faults of, of com comprehension. So I believe we should apply that, that same parameter and that same principle and, and tell them, well, in one week or two weeks, let's take an, uh, let's go out for another coffee and think about this, pray about this. Not wanting to seek a, a quick answer because the person still must process what and the Lord will work in their heart. Thank you, Hermanus. All right, let's get to the next question. How important should be uh, the dress code in the church, especially for women? What are you remembering about? Well, I remember that one time I was uh, telling a story. Pastor John was saying that he had a family member from a Af African American church that he would stand at the door of the church to, to see how the ladies were being dressed and that he would tell them, no, darling, the way you are dressed, you cannot enter the house of the Lord. Go back to your, your house, change yourself and then come back. That was something cultural, I believe, but I don't think it's so biblical. Just as Pastor John would say, depending on the church you have, you could not you cannot do that if the church was so big. It causes a, a, a bit of a, a joke, but sadly, uh, many times we can go to two extremes. There's the extreme where you can say, well, if you come to worship God and you are a lost person and all you are looking 
for it's the gospel, then let them come. Let that man or woman come. So they say, well, since they're seeking the Lord, well, of course, just let them come. But if they come, they can also go to the other extreme. The other extreme is being legalistic where, where they will have a ruler at the door and saying, well, if it's not this, this long at this distance, if it's not uh, close to your ankles, you cannot come in here or you can't use some pants because that is not from the Lord. So I believe that more than anything, we need to be careful, always thinking that the principle is is the heart of the person, and the only way to get there is through the Word of God. So the because the only one that has the power to change your heart is is the Lord. Also asking for wisdom, I believe that if a person truly has been born again and has a new heart and new desires for the Lord. I believe the Lord will speak to the to the life of that person, brother or sister, and he will show them how they are dressing to call attention from the others or or in a way to to dress decently. I believe it's an it is an attitude of the heart what is a principle. That's correct. I would point to motivation. I have a text here that I want to see in First Timothy uh, two nine. It says, "Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair or gold." Or pearl or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness. Reflecting as a woman um, piety, something that exalts God. And moreover than that, uh, rules that are not in the, the Bible, usually, uh, depending on the context that they're in, maybe in a moment you've heard that that the woman is prohibited from using pants. But in generally, those rules, by generally, they are based on particular revelation, uh, which is people who say, the Lord has told me that uh, women cannot use pants. What they are citing truly is the command that the woman or the man should not dress from the other gender. The pants, uh, as we can, uh, know it today, did not exist in the um, Old Testament. So it's more that we have the, uh, the principle of not dressing with clothes of the other gender. But speaking about women who seek to exalt God, Paul speaks about the principle here. I believe it is clear. Paul speaks to the motivation to piety. He points to exalting good works as it corresponds to women who seek piety, who seek to live holy. So if a woman is uh, doubting of how she should dress in church, 
or maybe it's on a Saturday night, thinking how she should go tomorrow uh, address the church. Uh, she should she should read First Timothy two nine and ask herself, uh, would this be would this be a, a good clothes that will reflect? Um, If this is what uh, motivates her, it, it, it could be a dress that goes to her ankles, but she is in disobedience because of the motivation is dark. So moreover than, than the length of the, the dress or a, a hairstyle in particular, I, I believe that is, I believe that is a principle, the motivation of what is driving me to dress this way. Uh, am I trying to reflect holiness, piety, or am I trying to reflect that I have beautiful dresses and jewelry, or or is it a comp competition? Do I want to look better than than that family? I want to look better than the other sister. So there, clearly, we have already a wrong heart. Hello. I'm sorry. I would also like to add that. Paul also gives another instruction to his young people, uh, sons in the faith, Titus chapter 2, verse, verse 3. It speaks to us about something very important, the women, the elder women in the church, the women who have already, who already advanced in, in age are a very a useful instrument in the church because they are able to help that the younger women who are probably uh, dressing in an incorrect way or incorrect motives, it can be a very much help. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching that teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility to love their their husbands, to love their children. And it says there's something clear to be prudent. Um, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be slandered. So older sisters, please pray so that the Lord may help you to be a blessing. And the pastor may not have to stand at the door. No, I'm... I'm I'm kidding. I don't think Steve would do that. All right. Thank you. Um, next question is easy. What is a predestination? <laughs> you talked about that. Yes, well, normally when we talk about predestination, uh, there are Questions that surge because because normally, not in all the contexts, but normally, a teaching is not very much treated, uh, sometimes forgotten. And as I said in the teaching, it is a doctrine that that puts our feet to the ground. It aligns us. We are not the ones who sought God. Neither are we the ones who won the favor of God. But in uh, undeserved favor. The Lord, even before he created the world, he loved me. 
even before the foundation of the world, before I even did anything good or bad, the love of God had had already been manifested. And so I am a debtor of that love, and I am going to respond with that sense that to my Lord I owe everything because I have not done anything to win that favor. And so I will worship Him and praise Him eternally. So punctually, when we talk, to, talk about predestination, I, I cannot opt to, to the way of ignoring it, which is usually what is done. I cannot negate predestination. We can talk about what it is, but we can never negate it. We can never deny it. So we must conversate, then what is predestination? And in simple terms, we must understand that we love God because He loved us first. Many times we sing that, but we don't even understand exactly what we are singing. So normally we can think that when one is saved, one repents of the sin, they they feel that sin, a weight of sin. When they hear the message of the gospel, one turns to Christ. And the initial perception that one has is, I sought the Lord. I repented. I was there hurting for my sin. I called out to the Lord, Lord, save me, forgive me. It was, it was an initiative of mine. It may seem in there in, at the beginning until I get to the word of God and begin to study it. And I become aware that if I love the Lord, it is because he loved me first. If my heart became tender to obey in obedience to the message of the gospel, it is because God gave me spiritual life. An example that I constantly hear is about Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus is there four days. Uh, the sister says, oh, it doesn't smell good. So when the Lord commanded to open the, the tomb, there was an opposition that it wasn't a good idea to do that because uh, many days had passed. So the Lord calls Lazarus and says, Lazarus, uh, come out, come out. And the question is, can Lazarus hear the voice of the Lord? Can the dead listen? No. Lazarus cannot hear the voice of the Lord. What must have happened? God must have given life to Lazarus so that he could listen to the voice of the Lord and respond in obedience and walk toward the Lord. It is a, it's a small example, but it's what happens in salvation. The exposi exposition of the gospel can come from, uh, from a preacher of, but the, the soul that is dead in sin does not hear the voice of God. It is dead in sin. It doesn't have spiritual life. It doesn't have, as Paul says, the desire, neither the capacity to hear God. It doesn't want to and it cannot, says Paul. And so what must happen is that the initial step is that God must give life to that heart. So Paul says in Ephesians 2, he gave us life. When we were alive, no, when you were dead in sins, that was the conditions, the conditional spiritual. We were inert spiritually, just as 
a dead man cannot respond or lift an arm, cannot feel pain when he is poked. And so is a man who is spiritually dead. You can show him Christ, but he is incapable of seeing the the beauty of Christ. He can see the gospel, he can hear, but he is incapable of responding because his soul is dead in sin until God removes the veil and the spiritual blindness and in, then that person can respond in faith and in obedience to the work of Christ. He will love and exalt him until Christ returns or to, until he's taken to the presence of the Lord. You don't want to come into the problem. He left me alone. All right, this question's for Ugo. <laughs> you did not save yourself. Why does God only predestine some and not all? Let's give the problem here to our brother. Uh, yes, based on what we have just heard with respect to love and predestination, how God chooses before the foundation of the world. I believe that the question is whoever made it is a genuine question. Thank you for a question, answer, asking that. But the question would not be how God chose some and not other. The question is why God chooses some. Because if we are all sinners and we are all dead in sin, if Jesus Christ died, if the gospel is alive, if he lived the perfect life so that we can repent and live for him, why is the God saving the people? Why? Because we are evil. And as Jose was saying a while ago, we are dead in our sins. We cannot on our own, we cannot on our own seek God. And so the question is not so much then why is, is it that God is evil? He's only choosing some and others are being sent to hell. No, we are, we were all dead and we were all going in that way toward hell. All of us, including pastors, including leaders, every, everyone. We all deserve hell, death and hell. None of us remain that gives us the merit as as Christ to be able to reach salvation. And so I would like that Christian to be reiterated in saying, how is it that God can love so much that in on top of what he did, sending his one and only son to die on a cross for uh, evil people, puts his hand in and saves some instead of allowing all of us to be lost, recognizing that we had the opportunity to be saved to Christ and we didn't want him. Because the principal problem is that when we are in, in sin, we are enemies of God. The fact that you are somehow good and go to church and so, know some songs and you do some things and not others, that doesn't mean that you are not an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God. Without Christ, you are lost. And the only one that can save you is God through reaching his hand, regenerating you, giving you a new heart, giving you a new spirit, giving you the Holy Spirit of God so that now you can react to the gospel and not only react to the gospel, but the whole complete package because he put his Holy Spirit so that you can keep his commands and his decrees. That's 
which speaks to us in Ezekiel and in John chapter three, when Nicodemus speaks to Christ and he gives him clearly speaks to him that is a work of God. So it is better for us to, to think the love and the mercy of God. Because if God wasn't so perfect and loving as he is, he would allow everyone to be lost. Yes, uh, two, com two comments, um, quick comments about that. I was thinking about what Ugo was saying. That when the Lord Jesus taught about salvation, he, he taught about the impossibility of, of the man to reach salvation when Nicodemus asked the Lord, Rabbi, we know that you come from God. We know the leaders. He was one of the leaders. We know that you come from God because no one can do the things that you do. He said, how can I enter the kingdom of God? How can I be born again? Look, Jesus asked him, you must be born again. The response of Nicodemus was, must I enter again the womb of my mother? And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. You you must be born again of the Spirit. And Nicodemus still doesn't understand. Jesus says, the wind blows from wherever. You, you don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What was Jesus saying? Nicodemus, it doesn't depend on you. The religion of Nicodemus functioned. What must I do? That is the question. Because the religion of Nicodemus was based on what must I do to please God. The same is the, the rich ruler who comes to seek Jesus. He says, what must I do to win the entrance into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, must you, have you kept this? But one thing you're missing, you must sell everything and give to the poor. The young ruler left sadly because he loved the riches more than God. But the disciples tell the Lord, who then can be saved? And the response is, what is impossible for men? What is impossible? Salvation. That is the context. What is impossible for men is possible toward the Lord. So the summary is that salvation is impossible for men. We cannot auto-transform our heart, our perverse heart. Someone on the ex external must do it. So it must be originated in God and only God. He is the only generator of salvation. And therefore, if someone has been born again, it is because God has called them. Now, going back to the question, I believe that Paul answers it very punctually. And we can leave it there. It is why God chooses some and not others. Not in a sense of, of making exception of people, not as us we would choose. Because God doesn't win anything. We can sometimes choose, well, this one is convenient for me, so I'm going to be his friend. There is a, a, a exception of people. There's an interest, an evil interest. Uh, in. But when God chooses, there is nothing that he is winning. Uh, God is not wi getting any benefit for the people he is, he is choosing. God is giving everything, rather. But Paul sums it up in this way. Ephesians 1, 5. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praises of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. That means that God is sovereign. That's what it means. It's the pure effect of his will. If we have a problem with that, we have a problem with God and his authority. God is the one who has created the things. He has all the authority to do with his creation what he pleases because he is God. I believe this question can come from the wrong idea that God is obligated to save everyone. That he is obligated to save someone and God is not obligated to save anyone and he would not be unjust to do, to do so. Okay. I think we have time for one more question. The next question is has to do with the mentorship for a pastor. Question is how important is it for a man who longs the for the pastor to receive mentorship? By microphone turned off on purpose. Vital. Vital because although we cannot replicate the model of the New Testament speaking about the Gospels because there's an extreme there as well we have to be careful with. I know of young people, it can be other other people, but generally it is young people who want to serve in the ministry and who have a desire to serve in the ministry. But they say, no, I'm not going to be with this leader or in this church because they... They are not pastoring me at the um, style that Jesus did to his disciples. So we cannot live that way, but there is a way that is reachable. That is what the word of God teaches us. And that this is what Paul tells Timothy when he speaks to him in 2 Timothy. When Paul tells Timothy, what you have seen in me in the presence of others, this teach to men who are apt, who are able to teach others. That is the norm. We are accustomed as a church, as a congregation, Hispanic congregation, normally to auto name ourselves pastors. And I am not judging the Motivation of the brother who with much love wants to serve, serve the, the sheep. What I'm saying is where is the model of discipleship? Where is the model of a, a, an elder pastor to put his hands upon you? Not to receive something differently, but, but to, That you may have, uh, spend time along that, that, uh, the side of that elder. First Timothy. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two. Uh, verse one. First of all, then I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgiving be made for all men, for 
sorry, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we we have to have an account that is very important that others, elders and others, pastors can confirm your calling. You cannot just be a lone ranger. I was in my home and I had a dream and I had a revelation and you go through another way thinking about things that are vain and you say, well, the Lord called me to the ministry because I have that dream. Or maybe it was the beans or maybe it was the the birria that you ate. But if I seek the word of God so that the word of God may guide me, what is the way um, to be able to be a disciple, to be truly uh to be truly backed up by by the gospel, those who desire eldership desire good things, and there's a process. And that process we see when Paul speaks to Timothy about the calling to the eldership. It it is born in the the heart of the person, but it is reproduced as the leaders are ministering to you and and are backing up that calling in your life. It is of um, of utter importance so don't reject those brothers who are if i were a pastor that i was erroneously in a ministry and after that i become aware that i need people of god to back back up my calling and to help me within my calling i would do it uh, and more than that i was close three years ministering in new york as you were saying, and I repeat, my son has 12 years old and I'm 13 years married. I myself will call your wife. Uh, you better, I'm just kidding. Uh, speaking seriously, I was three years in New York in that ministry. So about seven years I was um, in the ministry with uh, young adults. I had a good job. I had a good name within the ministry. I love the people of the ministry. They knew me. They knew my wife. I I had the help of other leaders. They wanted me to continue there. And I became aware that there were certain things that were not in accord with the word of God. And I God needed to prepare me. I need to prepare myself. Because if it is true that I'm going to give account to every every word that comes up from my mouth, I will have to give up. I said I do want, do not want to be one of those. So what did, what I did? We went to the extreme. We moved from the east to to the west, from New York to LA, to be able to study in the seminary. And I do not repent of that. I I do not regret it. Starting from zero, because God has these men has been ministering to my life during these seven years, and it is impressive it has been a great help to my life in my ministry and my family and i believe it is something vital uh seek for someone who can help you that. yes uh quickly um i think in verse 24 there's another uh clear guidance where it says that the servant of the lord must not be And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but to but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong with when wrong, 
with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. I would say that uh, mentorship is indispensable. It, it is not something optional. Also, it would, it would be good to add that it is not only that you feel the desire, but that there would be, as in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of of him who the Lord is calling to the service. Listen, t- uh, feeling that desire is only the, the initial, but these qualifications, this man must be confronted to see if these qualities are in his life. Uh, let me add something else. In the years that I have experienced working in the seminary, I have come across with uh, precious brothers who are in Latin America and have already a ministry, and they haven't had that, and they realize they need it. And normally what happens is that many times they want to study and they want to prepare themselves, but they say, I do not have the time to prepare myself and to seek that someone else may help me to be discipled. And what I tell them is, you don't have an option. If you want to continue in the ministry now that you know the truth, you must prepare yourself to be able to continue in the ministries because what you will provoke is a vicious cycle that that in your lack of knowledge and preparation uh, from you're going to prepare other men like that and you will multiply that. And instead of being prepared correctly, you will be multiplied for wrong. And this is why many churches sadly are not prepared men. And the fault falls in that we need to recognize that if you want to be in the ministry, there is no other option. You must be capacitated by other men who have been proved. Uh, there are more questions, but we don't have any more time. And so with this, we we finish our Q&A.